when Jesus steps in. That's the name of the theme that we're going to be on for the next three or four weeks. We will take a break during Mother's Day and probably have a different theme for that one. Before I get into the Word today, I just want you to know, for those of you that were really worried about Pastor Julie, she did check the weather to make sure that when she was going to be on the roof, it was going to be the warmest days that we have had this spring. And so uh, we'll be in prayer that she has a great time up there. Last Sunday was Easter, and as we came through that day, we had a topic that we had discussed as it related to a conversation that Jesus had had with a couple of men after his resurrection on a seven-mile hike between Jerusalem and Emmaus. Those two men at that time were confused. They were bewildered as to why the man Jesus, the one who they thought was going to be their Savior and their Messiah, had to be betrayed and beaten, why he had to suffer, why he had to be crucified. And in the minds of these two men, the image that they had created in their mind of what the Savior would do and how He would respond was different than the reality. And before we get too hard on them, I want you to understand that this is an issue that we still have today. There are many times when Jesus responds in a way that's different than what we anticipated. There are things that He does that are different than the way that we had asked Him to do it. And and as a result of that, sometimes the image that we have of our Creator and of our God and of our, our Savior is different than what He does. By now, they had heard rumors of an empty tomb. They didn't know what to believe or how to respond. And so we talked about how Jesus was walking with them. He comes right up on the road next to them, understands their conversation, and begins to speak to them in ways that they would be familiar with about why Jesus had to go through what he did to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies concerning his betrayal, the beating that he would take, and his crucifixion. At the end of that conversation, we were walking into town with them when the evening was coming. Jesus acted as if he was going to continue to walk on, and they prevailed upon him and said, listen, it's getting late. Why don't you come to our house and have a meal? And so he did. And as he was sitting there with them at the meal, we came to this verse in Luke chapter 24, verse 30. It says, And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. The theme of our Easter was everybody needs an eye-opening moment. Every one of us needs an eye-opening moment. What I didn't get a chance to really get into was this next line in the verse, which has always fascinated me when it says, and he vanished from their sight. Does that not just pique your interest a little bit? What in the world does that mean that Jesus breaks bread, gives it to them, they finally recognize who he is, and then poof, he's gone. Now, for those of you who, like me, like sci-fi movies and stuff, our minds go a million different directions on this. So I did a little research on it, and I discovered why not find out what happened after Jesus disappeared, and what does this all mean? Well, after they have their eye-opening moment, the Scripture says he vanishes, and the Greek word for that is aphantos. It means to become invisible. Is that not like every kid's dream, to just have the ability that when you want to, just become invisible? It also means to disappear. So I've spent some time this week thinking about this verse, wondering, where did he go? After he disappears at the dinner table, where did he go and why did he go there? 
And before I jump into this, I certainly want to thank Dr. James Bradford for the work that he has put in as he has provided some of the study material for this. And we are going to be talking today and for the next couple of weeks about when Jesus steps in, today when he steps into your fear, then when he steps into your doubt, then when he steps into your failure. So Lord, I pray that over these next few moments, you will clear our hearts and minds so that we can receive the direction of your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus disappears from the supper table. If it had been me, I would have done that right before they served the vegetables. But for whatever reason, Jesus waited until they had recognized him, and he disappears from them. At the same time, the Bible tells us that his disciples, after the resurrection, on the evening of the resurrection day, while there were some people that were celebrating the fact that they had seen him, his disciples were not because the resurrection day hadn't been a cause for joy for them yet. They were fearful. They were afraid that now that Jesus had been killed, that the religious leaders would come after his followers. They were afraid that their lives were now in jeopardy. And we find ourselves in Scripture as Jesus has departed from the supper table and before he shows up at the next place on the Sunday evening of the resurrection day. Jesus rose from the dead and now he is at work. And in our text today, we find it in John chapter 20, verse 19. It says this, On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I want you to picture this scene, and I want you also to understand in picturing this scene, we are talking about the disciples of Jesus Christ who have walked with him, who have been used in great power, who have great authority through his name. And what were they doing? They were hiding. They were all together hiding in fear. In fact, they were hiding in fear in a locked room. Now, I don't know what the locks of that day look like. I know what the locks look like for us today. And some of you have many locks on your doors. You have chains. You have deadbolts. You have this. And I, I picture in my mind that whatever ability they had to try to protect themselves to keep the outside from getting in, they were huddled in there with all of the doors locked. They were in a state of fear, doing everything they could do to protect themselves. And in that moment, and in that atmosphere, Jesus steps in. And he says one thing that none of them are feeling. He says, peace be with you. And I would like to acknowledge that that's the two governing words of this passage of Scripture, fear and peace. And these are the two things that are at war within each of us on a constant basis. Every one of our hearts will be turned either to peace or it will be turned to fear. In fact, this week, one of the social commenters stated that they have never seen a time in the history of mankind where there was more fear in our culture than there is in what America is experiencing today. You see, we get fear. We know what fear is like. In fact, it was fascinating to me that a month ago we had a water baptism service here and there were a number of our students that were baptized and some of our children. And my wife and I commented at the end of that on how many of the students, when they were giving their testimony, these are our children and our teenagers, that in their testimonies was a reoccurring theme. Most of them mentioned that when Jesus saved them, he brought them out of deep anxiety, discouragement, and fear. Folks, these are our children that God is having to deliver 
from discouragement and fear. And so we look at this and say, well, what are the causes of fear that we have in our world today? Well, there are three that I would like you to make note of. Number one, we're afraid of the unknowable. Fear is understandable because the unknowables are what haunt us in our life. Now, I don't know about you, but I've discovered that people are generally one of two ways. Either the things that they don't know about constantly causes them this anxiety and the fear, or there are people that what they don't know about, they just don't care about. Why worry about it until it comes? The vast majority of people, however, when we don't know something, our minds automatically go to worst-case scenarios. And so when dealing with the unknowns, there are many people that tend to fill the blanks in in their mind with what haunts them the most. I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands of how many of you are worst-case scenario people or how many of you may be the other end of that, but I want you to know that when we don't know something, our minds often take us places. I read a story this week about an Arab chief who told a story of a spy that was captured and sentenced to death by the general of the Persian army. The general had a strange custom of giving condemned criminals a choice between a very quick death of the firing squad or whatever was behind a big black door, whatever kind of treatment that may be. And this particular day, as the moment of execution came, the spy was brought before the general and he asked the question, what will it be? The firing squad for a very quick death or whatever might lie behind the black door? The spy stood there and hesitated for quite some time because it was a difficult decision. Ultimately, he chose the firing squad, and moments later, the shots rang out that confirmed his execution. The general turned to his aide and said, they always prefer the known to the unknown. It's a characteristic of people to be afraid of what they do not know. Yet we gave him a choice, and so the aide said to him, well, what was behind the big black door? The general said, freedom. Freedom. But very few people will ever take the unknown. So the unknowable haunts us. Beyond the unknown, what also causes us to be afraid is the uncontrollable. You see, if the unknown haunts us, the uncontrollable threats, threatens us. Now, I know that there are a number of people here that you like to be able to control every setting and every circumstance. You work really hard in your life to schedule things so that nothing ever happens that's outside of your control. Let me tell you something. The uncontrollable is what causes us stress. When we get to a place where we don't feel in control anymore, and when we don't feel in control, we feel vulnerable. We can't protect ourselves anymore. And the uncontrollables threaten our safety and our well-being and our security. And so when we face the unknowable, it haunts us. The uncontrollables threaten us. And the third thing that causes us fear is the unpredictable. Because it's the unpredictable things in our life that perplex us. As the last two years of our world has shown us, this is a very unpredictable time. Just about the time we think we may be making steps and something's coming back to normal, something else happens and we are thrown into this unexpected thing and everything is unpredictable. We are experiencing a time in our world today where living in fear for people is happening at many, many different levels. There's the fear of sickness from COVID. We have people that are locked in their homes, and we have others that wear masks. We have others that don't. There are so many different things that are out there, but we live in fear of what's going to happen as a result of sickness. 
Folks, we live in an economy that is out of control. And our economy is causing many, many people to live in fear. There's the fear of the war in the Ukraine as the untold stories are emerging out of the mist of secrecy of what is happening there and the hatred of mankind for one another. We live in a fear of losing control of what our children are being taught and at what age they are being exposed to information that will shape their values and attitudes as our world seeks to remove the ability of people to parent their own children and their values. We live in a fear of the future. And as we look around, there are all kinds of things that can cause us to fear. It's no wonder that we live in fear. And this is exactly what was going on in the lives of the disciples. Their lives had been altered. Their hero, their master, the Lord, the one they thought was going to save them, was executed right in front of their eyes, and now they're running for their lives. And they don't know what's coming next. It's impossible to predict for them what the next best decision is. And everything in their lives is out of control. So they did the only thing that they knew to do. Hide, lock the door, find a remote place, hunker down, and together let's be in fear. And this is where John finds them. But then Jesus steps in. Can I just tell you how comforting those words are to any of us? That in moments of time when we find things are out of our control and we do not know what to do, everything is unpredictable, then Jesus steps in. And in that moment, he steps into their fear with his resurrection peace. And this is why we celebrate. This is why we worship. This is why we sing. Because fear cannot hang on when Jesus steps in. Nobody can overcome the peace that our Savior can give to us. I love that Jesus' answer to fear isn't to them, Hey, guys, I just want you to know I've come here today. I've written a book, and I want to teach you how to cope with your fears. Just want you all to learn. It's time to learn to take a deep breath, a cleansing breath. You just, you just need to work through these things. You need to control your thoughts. And, and, you know, he didn't say any of that. He just simply spoke and stepped in and he said, Peace be with you. Interesting enough, as Jesus leaves the dinner table and disappears, he didn't need to walk through an open door to get into the room. He just appears there. And in this locked room, he speaks the very words that they lacked as he says, peace be with you. In fact, if you look at the scripture, Jesus uses that term peace be with you twice and the term fear is only used once. In other words, it doesn't matter what the world throws at you. Jesus has twice as much peace as you will ever have fear if you'll just tap into it. And it's at this moment that both times when Jesus says, peace be with you, that Jesus will physically do something that will tell us why we so desperately need his resurrection and why it's so incredibly important that we worship a risen Savior. You see, the resurrection proves that you can have peace with God. The resurrection proves that you can have peace with God. You see, peace with God is what our hearts are seeking. This is what it's all about. And many people resort to just trying to find the right coping skills to deal with, with fear. And all of that has a place. Let me tell you something. When the enemy is coming against your mind, you need to be able to stand up and say, Lord, I need you to take my thoughts captive. I need you to step in with your Holy Spirit and bring help there. 
But when you look at this way, so many people today are experiencing fear because you are out of alignment with your Creator and you are not living how you were designed to live. And peace in your life will only start when you find peace with God in a relationship with Him. Now, I understand there may be those that are watching online today and maybe you're even here today and you're going, I'm skeptical, skeptical of all of that, Pastor. How can having peace with God possibly make a difference within my life? Because you start with having peace with God and then the pressures of the unknown and the pressures and the tense stress of the uncontrollable and the unpredictable then fall on him, not on you, because he says that when he comes into our life, that he will be like a brother, closer than a friend. He will never leave us or forsake us. And because he knows what's in the future, everything you fear is on him, not on you. He lifts those things from you and says, I want you to know that as your God, as your Savior, I will walk with you and I will give you wisdom. And so he stands in that room suddenly and he speaks to them and he offered them something that was radically different than what had ever been offered to them before. And he says to them, peace be with you. And after this, look what he physically did. The Bible says he showed them his hands and his side. In this room of fear, he appears and he says to them, peace be with you. And then he shows them the nail prints and the wounds. And they see where the Roman soldiers had put the nails through his hand and spear into his side. And so we see here that Jesus in his resurrection form still carries his wounds. And suddenly these disciples who had been walking with him and following him and being taught the scripture, their mind instantly would have gone back to the prophecy of Isaiah 700 years earlier when he said in Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced. He was pierced. And they begin to make the connection between the hands that Jesus was showing and the spear mark in his side, and they begin to understand that he had to go through this for them. He was pierced for our transgressions. Mark Freeman, a a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday night during our prayer time I was giving a devotion on the difference between our sin and our transgressions and our iniquity. The sin that we all make, whether we know it or not, the transgressions are things that we do that we know we're breaking the law of God. And the iniquity is when we break the law of God and talk ourselves into the fact that it's okay with God for us to do that. And God covered all of these things when he died for us. Transgressions, we all know that we have transgressed. All we have to do is look at the Ten Commandments and recognize that there's idol worship, demonism, sexual immorality, lying, cheating, stealing, hating, killing, being greedy for what other people have, and I'll get it at any cost. And as we read that short list, we all know that we are guilty of transgressions. These are things that have separated us from a holy God. And as he stood there in that room, he said, remember back, I was pierced for your transgressions. And that had to go through the mind of the disciples as Jesus is showing them his wounds to prove that he had done what he needed to do so that their transgressions could be forgiven. Isaiah goes on in that 53rd chapter to say he was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace, the punishment that brought us peace, the very thing that we need the most was upon him. And by his wounds we were healed. I don't know about you today, but if you're in need of peace, 
you need to understand that it was provided for you by what Jesus did. His punishment provides you peace. He bore the punishment that made peace with God possible for each of us. No wonder his wounds didn't disappear in his resurrected body because it was a reminder to us of what he went through so that we could be in relationship. It was also a declaration to Satan that the price of justice has been paid for me and his wounds are my receipt that I can be right with God because he was pierced for my transgressions. So after Jesus died and rose again, the Apostle Paul writes this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. In other words, if you long for peace in your life, it only comes when you have found the right relationship with your Creator. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So through faith in His work, And here's what we must understand. You and I are not active agents at all in our salvation. You and I could do absolutely nothing to earn it. We can't make him turn his face toward us in in any greater grace. It was all on him. And justified means this. Just as if we've never sinned. Now, I want you just to think about that for a moment. We've been justified just as if we've never sinned because there's going to come a moment in time when we will all stand before God at the judgment. And Satan is going to stand there and begin to throw out a list of everything that you and I have done that make it so that we don't deserve to be there. And then Jesus is going to stand up and say, because of my sacrifice and because of what they have done in receiving me, when the Father looks at us, he will look at us as if we have never been stained by sin once. Don't know about you. That makes me pretty happy. Just as if I've never sinned. So don't you sit there and tell yourself that you have been too bad for the grace of God. Don't you dare let the enemy tell you that you can't be in his grace. Author Patrick Means observed these things about churches today. He said, here is the danger that churches like ours can drift into as we drift away from what Jesus did on the cross. He said, first of all, they're shaming churches. A shaming church excludes people from God's grace by reminding them that they've never done enough and they've never been good enough. Or there's what he calls the quick fix churches who who exclude people who can't quote a few Bible verses with enough faith to make their problems disappear. And then there's the workaholic churches. It excludes people who can't or won't seek to please God by how much they do for Him. They believe that your value to God is centered in your level of activism to cause him somehow to allow you to be earned his favor. And then there's the image churches. These churches exclude people who can't look perfect and they can't act as if they don't have any problems. Oh, God, help us. Help us. I want to tell you that shame, quick fixes, activism, and image will never give you peace with God. And may we never become a church like that. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Now, many of you may have read the book about the five love languages, and, and receiving gifts is one of those languages. We talk to a lot about uh, to people who are getting married about trying to figure out what your spouse's love language is. I love the fact that God is expressing to us 
that a love language that he has for us is he gives us gifts. Any of you kind of like that? Four of you. The rest of you are liars. We all like to receive gifts, and especially when they're gifts from God. It says he comes into our life as a giver. He comes giving gifts. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Our relationship with God is given to us as his gift. Your salvation is entirely based on what he did for you. And his wounds show that his gift to you provides you peace when he steps into your life and the fears that exist there. Again, in Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. I know of nothing greater than if you don't have peace in your life than asking the Lord to step into your fears and allowing him to show you the receipt of the gifts that he has given to you. So the resurrection proves we can have peace with God. And lastly, the resurrection puts power behind our peace. This is why our lives change when we have an encounter with God. If you, if you say to me that you have had an encounter with the risen Savior, that you've had a salvation experience, but your life never changed, then I really wonder about whether the resurrection power of God is at work within you. Because when he comes into our life and his Holy Spirit lives within us, everything changes. He didn't come in just to give your life a, a, a little kick in the right direction. He came in to change you. And that's why our lives, when we encounter him, we have a peace that comes from him and not from us. And on this night when he encounters his disciples hiding in a locked room, these great men of power, again it says in verse 21, he says again to them, Peace be with you, and as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. In other words, now I have a job for you to do. And then it says, and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The first time he said, peace be with you, he showed them his scars. This time he breathed on them, and when he breathed on them, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. I pray that this happens every day of your life in your walk with Jesus Christ, that you get up in the morning and you say to him, breathe on me your Holy Spirit. Give me resurrection power today in my life as I am walking, that regardless of what I face, I will not fall into the trap of fear because I know that you are with me and in me and working through me. The Holy Spirit living within us is resurrection life. So he doesn't show them the scars, he breathes on them. The Greek words for spirit and the Hebrew words for spirit are breath. And it's always symbolic of something that's way beyond our coping skills. This is a divine impartation into your life of everything that you need. I don't know who needs to hear that today. But you may have been working on seeing, trying to make it through on your own, and today, for the first time, you are hearing that the peace that you have been needing comes through the resurrected Jesus Christ. And when he gives you peace, he gives you more. He doesn't just give you peace, he gives you himself. So when we talk about to people who are, who are hesitant to yield their life to Jesus because of everything that they're going to have to give up, how many of you have heard this? Well, if you're going to live for Jesus, you're not going to have any fun. Do they even know us? Because when Jesus comes, he gives us peace and more. 
He gives us peace in life. He gives us that more abundantly. And he puts a power behind the peace that we desperately need. The Holy Spirit's power. There's a man by the name of Pastor Mariga. He pastors a church in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And he shares his testimony of how he came to know Jesus. He had been living a life of spiritism and witchcraft, occultic practices. He says, I was deeply, deeply involved in witchcraft. I had always had a sensitivity to spiritual things and the spiritual realm, so this seemed like an open door. And I want you to know that in the spiritual realm, there is the Holy Spirit and then there is the demonic spirit. So just because you may be a spiritual person does not necessarily mean that you are seeking the right spirit. The reason and the way that you can tell the difference between whether or not you are spirit-filled by the Holy Spirit or whether you are being possessed or pursued by demonic is one will give you peace and the other will cause you fear. Pastor McGarra said, I was deeply involved in witchcraft, and strangely enough, nobody really came and talked to me about Jesus, but I was sitting in an area where there were two Christians that were near me, and they were arguing with one another. They were arguing about which one of them had a better Christian life. He says, and in the middle of this argument, they were talking enough about what Jesus had done for them that something spurred within his heart, and faith happened to be birthed in that moment. And he said, soon I gave my life to Jesus. And he said, the moment I did that, I knew resurrection life had been poured into me. He said, and God worked in my heart and I was converted. And for the first time in my life, I found peace with God and God's spirit began to fill me. He said, the pattern in Ethiopia, in the area that I lived, was that if you renounced witchcraft, that generally within two or three days, you would be dead. And so when I told people that I had renounced witchcraft and that I had received Jesus, everybody said, you're going to be dead in two or three days. He said, three days later, I'm still alive. People said, it's going to be any minute now. He said, two weeks later, I'm still alive and I'm, I'm functioning and I'm doing just fine. He said, in fact, something funny began to happen. The more I opened up my life to the power of the Holy Spirit, the more that the demonic people around me began to get agitated. He said, I could be sitting in a restaurant and people at a, at a booth nearby, suddenly the demonic within them would begin to manifest itself. And, and he said, while I'm trying to eat, these things are happening as the demons are getting angry. And he said, I just begin to go over and pray for them. And God is delivering people in the middle of restaurants. He said, the, the power of God within me was stirring up the enemy. He said, so two weeks into being a Christian, I'm beginning to recognize the power of the Spirit within us. He said, I cast out demons. People would come to Christ. He went on to start 41 churches. He's now pastoring the largest Assembly of God church in Ethiopia. This happens because God steps into the fear of people with resurrection power. And he says, peace, I bring you peace. And then he fills you with the power of his Holy Spirit. I leave you with this verse in John chapter 14, verse 27. This was the night before Jesus was crucified that he would say, peace, I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give it as the world gives, and do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. God today is stepping into the room of your fear and desires to lead you to peace. 